Please turn with me in your bulletin insert to our passage of Scripture. Uh, the passage that is printed for you is correct. The heading is not correct. That is uh, what you have before you, John 12, verses 20 through 33. And that's the passage that we want to look at together this morning. And we'll use this as a unison reading and let us read the Word of God together. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Speaking of famous people, years ago Duke University hosted Billy Graham as the Sunday preacher one day at the Duke University Chapel. And the week before he was to arrive, the university police department called the chapel office uh, with what they said were very urgent questions. Questions like, will Graham bring his own security people? And if he has folks with him, his people need to be registered in our office. We want to make sure that there are enough security people there around Dr. Graham. Well, the chaplain at that time dutifully called Dr. Graham asking him about what security he required. Now, how do you think he answered? He said, the Lord is my security. I'm going to take a flight into Raleigh-Durham Airport and rent a car and drive it over to the hotel on Saturday afternoon and then it'll just be me on Sunday morning. Mr. Graham has always been so unassuming 
And just because he's a person of notoriety, Duke University's police department automatically assumed that he would have his own buffer of people insulating him from people like you and me. And the point I want you to take from that story is to notice that people still thought that way 2,000 years ago. Because here we see in our passage of Scripture this morning people thinking the same way. These Greeks think that they have to go through Jesus' people in order to get to Him. Our text puts it this way, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now I know that we typically think of Jerusalem as the uh, Jewish center of the ancient world, and it was to some extent. And this might seem kind of strange to us to be reading about how these Greeks were here during the feast of Passover. But we have to remember that the Roman Empire had made travel very easy. And the Greek people have always been a curious people and have had an insatiable hunger for knowledge. In fact, we see that explained or described for us in Acts 17 when the Apostle Paul travels to the city of Athens proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We're told there in Acts 17 that the people of Athens took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what these things mean. And then Luke gives us a one-line commentary as he writes Acts 17 there on what the Greek people are really like. Now all the Athenians spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now whether these particular Greeks knew Philip or whether they simply went to the disciple with a Greek name, we don't know. But Philip wasn't sure what to do with them. You know, these are Greeks after all. You know, Jesus in most of His ministry has typically acted like He doesn't have time for the Greeks because He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so we see Him say some things like that from time to time in the Gospels. But anyway, Philip doesn't know what to do, so where does he wind up? He ends up with Andrew. And that shouldn't surprise us because we talked about Andrew just a month or so ago in our, in our sermon on missional multiplication, that last basic vital discipline of church revitalization. And we talked about Andrew that Sunday and how he's always bringing someone to Jesus. And once again, such is the case in this passage. And notice that there's no doubt with what he's going to do with these Greeks. He's taking them to Jesus because he's been with Jesus for three years. He knows that anytime somebody truly desires to be with Jesus Christ, he's ready to receive them. There's no question in his mind, even if they are Greeks. And why they want to see Jesus 
We're not told. That information is not important to John. You know, it could be because they'd heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's why most of that crowd was there bustling around Jesus that day because they had heard about this wonderful miracle He had performed. Or maybe these Greeks were in the, that part of the temple area where they could actually go the court of the Gentiles, when Jesus turned out all of the animals and all of the money changers and all of that. Maybe that's why they wanted to see Him. But as I say, we don't know because that's not important to John. What is important is the theological symbolism we see taking place. Because these Greeks that we can most likely assume are God-fearing Greeks, people sort of like Uh, Cornelius, the centurion that we read about in the book of Acts. For John, these Greeks represent the so-called scattered children of God that Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesies about and that John records for us in his 11th chapter. You see, to John, these Greeks are the other sheep in his fold that Jesus talks about that we see in John 10. In fact, this whole episode, as John tells it, sort of exudes Isaiah 66 where the prophet is talking about how God will reveal His glory to all the nations and all tongues. That's where the prophet Isaiah says, I know their works and their thoughts and I'm coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Now, did you hear that? They shall come and see my glory. Think back in your minds to the very first two disciples that followed Jesus in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. You remember that story? John the Baptist is there. He sees Jesus walking by, I imagine, and says to two what I assume are two of his own disciples, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does what do they do? They turn and start following Jesus. And in my mind's eye, I see Jesus seeing them behind him, and he turns around and says, What are you fellows looking for? And they ask him, Where are you staying? And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, Come and see. Come and see. Now that sounds like just regular words to you and me. But those are words that rabbis use. This is the language of discipleship going all the way back to at least Isaiah 66 where God says about all the nations of the world they're going to come and see my glory. And so when these disciples follow Jesus, He says come and and see, that's a, a formula we see over and over again. And we even see Jesus' disciples learn to use this formula. You know, when Philip finds Nathaniel, also told in John's Gospel, and he says to him, We found the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember that blunt question that Nathaniel has? Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? He says, come and see. 
It's the same echo in this passage before us this morning. In the words of these Greeks, we want to see Jesus. Obviously, on one level, that refers to an opportunity to talk with Him, to ask Him questions, to meet with Him face to face, maybe hear some of His teaching. But these verbs having to do with seeing in John's gospel are invitations to belief. These could be Greek people who are ready to follow Jesus Christ as His disciples. And this realization of the world pictured here in these Greeks coming to Jesus triggers the so-called hour that we've heard about all through this gospel almost from the very beginning. Do you remember the first miracle that John talks about in his gospel? It's in chapter 2. The water turned into wine at the wedding in Cana. There must have been a lot of thirsty people there because they ran out of wine that day. And Jesus' mother comes to him saying, they've run out of wine, as if to say, I know you can do something about it. And Jesus said, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We hear him say something similar to that in John 7 and in John 8. We're always hearing about this hour that has not yet come. But here when these Greeks want to see him, Look at what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this hour of glorification points to His return to God the Father through His death on the cross, His subsequent resurrection and exaltation. Something has changed. Something tremendous. Because in the verse preceding our passage, we can see that the Pharisees have no use for Jesus. In fact, they want to find a way to kill Him. It's indicative of how Jesus has come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they have rejected Him, and so now He's turning to the Greeks. These Greeks come to Him, and now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. John is saying that Jesus belongs to the greater world. And I say that this hour of glorification points to his death because he makes that clear. In the words of this little parable that he gives to us here in our passage which explains the law of the kingdom of God. He says, just as a seed must be placed in the ground and die in order to give new life, likewise Jesus must die in order to give life to the world. And notice that this same principle applies to those of us who would follow Him. To give up our hold on life is the key to participation in the kingdom. As he puts it in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. We see this same principle right here that I just quoted five other times in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
It's like it's in the New Testament so many times that we can't miss it. If we miss it in one place, we see it somewhere else. This is what living in the kingdom of God is all about. And quite frankly, what Jesus says here would have been a shock to those hearing His words. They would have understood the farming metaphor okay, but to tie that to the Son of Man would have been unheard of because for them, going all the way back to Daniel 7, the Son of Man was like Israel's great champion. The Son of Man was someone that God was going to send in the world who could not be defeated in battle. But when Jesus said, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, He meant something else entirely different. They would have had an expectation and excitement that you and I can't imagine when they heard those words. When He said, the Son of Man, now is it time for Him to be glorified, they would have been thinking about the indestructible armies of God and His power and how they would vanquish all of their enemies and be on top of the world once again as in the days of King David. But in using that word glorified, Jesus didn't mean what they meant. As one scholar put it, when the Son of Man was mentioned, they thought of the indestructible armies of God and He meant the conquest of the cross. But there's even more going on with this word of of glorification than just Jesus' death on the cross. As His little parable makes clear, there's also the ability to bear fruit in the future. This is a glimpse of of what is to come in the life of the church. There will be much fruit and it will be coming from the Greek-speaking world. You know, this is much of what the book of Acts is all about. Showing how the proclamation of the gospel that begins there in Jerusalem with Jesus Christ ends up going all over the world. We see an Ethiopian eunuch converted on a wilderness road so he can take that back to the continent of Africa. We see Cornelius the centurion converted by the the good news of the gospel and the faith and the grace that God gives through that faith, through the words of Peter. And constantly in the book of Acts we see more and more people from all over the world cities where Paul is planning the good news of the gospel and churches are springing up. God is at work among the Gentiles and it all begins to some extent in this passage before us. Jesus even echoes this work in His own words here at the end of our text when He says after His resurrection He will draw all people to himself. In other words, it's not just going to be Jews. He's going to be drawing all people to himself. Without rejecting Israel, this passage affirms a new direction in the work of Jesus and his disciples. And this means that Jesus and his people, Jesus and his church will be committed 
to those living outside the traditions with which they're familiar. And obviously, as we think about how to apply this passage in our own lives, especially as we move toward the process of revitalization and as we keep in mind our long-range plan goal of planning a new church, this is where we need to cast our anchor. What would it look like for us to embrace this same kind of attitude at work here in First ARP in this greater community? Who are the other sheep that are not yet in Jesus' flock? Are they people just like us or people maybe very different from us? Just like we see in Jesus' own life and in His death and in His words here in this parable, is there the indication that if we embrace this kind of mission, we too will have to take risks? That we might even find ourselves carrying our own cross and following Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. You see, if we die to self, just like this seed placed in the ground, then it's not about us anymore. And that's the spiritual attitude we must have if we're going to plant a church with God's help. And if we're going to see any kind of revitalization take place in our own hearts, much less this congregation as a whole, it cannot be about us. It has to be about God's plan and purpose for our lives. It has to be about God's will for our lives. It has to be about God's vision for His church. That's what we see in Jesus' example here in this text. Jesus was willing to allow Himself to be put in the ground in death, forsaken by God. He was willing to die to self even if it meant going all the way to the cross and all the way to hell and back. And we can see here that only if He died would there be fruit. Only His death could bring about the gift of salvation for many. That's why He came into the world. You know, it's been more than 30 years ago that a professor of philosophy by the name of Philip Halley wrote a book entitled, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed was a book about a small French village, a little town whose people, unlike so many others in France at the same time, engaged in the dangerous practice of sheltering Jews from the Nazis during the German occupation of France in World War II. And after the war was over, this author went and talked to the people of this town He interviewed them, and he found out that they weren't particularly heroic people. In fact, they weren't really enlightened from a political standpoint. Rather, what he found out was that the largest part of their education had come from the teachings of the village church. Each week, the pastor proclaimed the word, 
And each week the members of the parish studied the Scriptures and each week they came to understand just a little bit more of what it means to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. And over time, week in and week out, the people there came by habit to be people who knew what to do and who also developed a willingness to do it. In other words, they understood what it meant to die to self. And so when the time came for them to be courageous, meaning when the Nazis actually entered their little town and started going door to door looking for Jewish people, they kept their Jewish brothers and sisters safe and out of harm's way. One elderly woman who faked a heart attack when the Nazis came knocking at her door, she was asked why she did what she did. And she said, well, pastor always taught us that there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came, we knew what to do. Another elderly lady was asked why she would be willing to risk her life for strangers that she didn't even know. And this was her answer. She said, for what else was I born? You talk about dying to self. When the world stood at Jesus' door, the world pictured in these Greek people They're in harm's way because of their own sins. Jesus was ready to lay His life on the line. His time had come. He knew that's why He was put on this earth. So that after the agony and forsakenness of the cross, He would draw all people to Himself through the power of God at work in His Holy Spirit. And it would make the Scripture true that no one will be put to shame who believes in Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why He was born. This is why He died. And this is why God raised Him on the third day. So that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we do thank You for this passage of Scripture and the way it gives us such a clear indication that Jesus knew exactly what His purpose was all about. And that His purpose was to fulfill Your will 
to give the gift of salvation and redemption to the world. And His purpose was to be glorified and to glorify you. And, oh God, we must confess that sometimes we forget about our purpose to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And so we pray that we might learn what it means to hate our lives in this world. We know that Jesus was using the Semitic hyperbole there in that sentence. We know that He was exaggerating using that word hate, and yet it helps us to understand what's involved when we die to self and live to you. And so we pray that you would put that desire within our own hearts more and more each day to a little more die to self and to live for you. We thank you for his willingness to come into this world and to live a perfect life and carry out your will completely because we're not able to do so. And we thank you that you show your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us. And dear Father, we thank you for your call upon us as your church to always be reforming by your word that fills us and your spirit's power each and every day. And we thank you for this opportunity as a congregation to go through a process of revitalization. We pray for it. And we pray that we might put into practice uh, these basic vital disciplines each day in our lives as we pray for this church, as we pray for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that we think of a preemptive prayer and use prayer even before we might think it's needed, that you would help us to stay in the Word that you would help us to work on our commitment and to see that commitment to you and your kingdom costs us something and to reach out to the lost around us through our relationships so that it can be said of this congregation like it was said of your church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts that each day people were added to the church. Oh God, we pray that you'll help us to not think of numbers as we think of church growth, but of actual people 
people with names, people who stand beside us in line at the bank, people who live down the street from us, people in our classrooms who sit two rows over, people who are lost without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to not only just have a love for you and a love for one another, but indeed a love for the lost. We know we need your help with that, and we ask for it. And as always, we thank you for your graciousness unto us, for your watchfulness over us, for your healing power at work in people's lives, for your comfort and peace poured out upon the grieving, for your wisdom for those who uh, are making decisions. We thank you for your safety and protection for our children, our young people, especially our middle schoolers as they come back from Bon Clarkin today in a, a spiritual retreat. We pray that they will have grown in their faith and that you'll give them safe travels to this place. And we continue to pray for safety and protection uh, for all our men and women in the armed services and all those who keep us safe and work for our benefit and good health. And we continue to pray for your wisdom for our elected leaders in governments as well as in the life of this church. And we thank you for our presbytery and the work of our denomination. And we thank you for your obvious blessings upon us all and for the way in which you'll continue to guide us for your honor and glory in the days to come and would ask your blessing upon us to that end. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We do want to reaffirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. If you're visiting with us, they're printed in your bulletin. Let's stand together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our hymn of dedication is also in your red hymnals, number 496.
grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father and the blessing of God Almighty, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you this day and remain with you forevermore. Amen. Thank you.